0: All right. Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome. Go ahead. Go ahead and uh, grab a seat. I invite you to to stop talking to your neighbor now. You're done with them for the next forty minutes. Hey, I uh, want to welcome you and to say I'm super pumped for you to be here. We're kicking off a new series today called Emmaus. We're excited about it. Before we do, though, uh, I want to invite the ushers to come forward to receive our morning offering. It's a great way for us to continue to worship God, uh, giving our resources to his kingdom. Uh, they're his anyway. So, well... uh As Dave said, we are excited about what God's doing in this community, and uh, it's cool to see just the ways that His Spirit is at work among you all. And today, as we launch into our Emmaus series, we want to begin talking about how we actually translate these kind of abstract words into lived reality. And the reality is, getting from here to there is not always easy, so... As the ushers are working through the room, let me begin with an observation. Uh, And that is this that community, uh, deep, authentic community, think of whatever images get stirred up when I say those words to you, what comes to mind, right? Think about that. Community is one of these realities in the North American church that might be one of the most overpromised and yet undelivered realities. If you have not yet been disappointed by church, you have not spent enough time in church, okay? Amen? Amen. Yeah, it's because church is full of people in process, and people in process are not perfect, and imperfect people bring disappointment. Welcome to reality, friends, okay? And so... uh, the reason community is overpromised and maybe underlived, under experienced, and underdelivered is not because we don't want it. It's not because we don't think it's important. It's because it's really difficult. It's hard. It's not easy. It goes against the grain of so much in us. It goes against the grain of our me-centered American story. Because the reality is, many of us are disciples and claim to be disciples of Jesus on Sunday with our hands up and all, and yet Monday through Saturday, we are most frequently disciples of our culture. We live as apprentices to the patterns and values of the world around us. And that story shapes us and our expectations. And so this is, of course, why... In Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul says to the church in Rome, in light of the profound, immeasurable mercy of God in Jesus, do not be, you know what I'm about to say, conformed to the pattern of the world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so Paul invites us to be transformed. And yet this exhortation as well is difficult, isn't it? This tr- invitation to be transformed uh, is another over-talked-about, under-lived reality for many of us. And what are the, one of the things I see that s- is that spiritual formation, that is the formation of our inner being to reflect the person and the character of Jesus himself, often seems vague and out of reach for a lot of us. And so community and spiritual formation, spiritual transformation, these two realities are in many ways like the the meat and potatoes, the basics, the staples of the Christian lived faith. And yet, uh, the metaphor I would offer to you is while they are the meat and potatoes, for many, for many, they are still just food on a plate left out on the counter. The heat has long gone They might be accessible, they might be uh, attractive or appealing, but for many they're untasted, undigested, and left out on the counter. And so this series, Emmaus, along the way, is a series where we are trying to come to the table. And we're trying to bring up the heat on these realities and begin to taste and take these realities in and imbibe and nourish our souls on these realities. And so we're going to spend the next two months in one story. Uh, We're going to take one story and look at it from different angles, and we're going to allow that story Uh, To begin to soak in our imaginations. We're going to live into this story, get ourselves inside it, and get its realities inside us in order to see what it reveals about living this journey of formation, transformation, and community. Does that sound like something you're up for? All right. Well, let's get into the story. Let's get in. Luke chapter 24. Uh, Go ahead and turn there. And as you do, let me just pray for us. Father, we look to your word to give guidance, to give truth, and to re-narrate our lives around the truth of who you are and what you've done. And so we open ourselves again to your truth. Lord, work in us, speak to us, and let us reflect you for the glory and for the sake of Jesus. Amen. So Luke, chapter 24. Luke 24 begins like this. Jesus is dead, crucified, dead, and buried. The women who formed the inner circle of uh, Jesus's community had tried to prepare his body for burial. They had gotten the spices and the embalming materials ready on Friday, but they couldn't quite get to him before the Sabbath began. And so the Sabbath is now over. It is Sunday morning, Easter Sunday, and they come back to the tomb with all of their embalming material ready to go, committed to following through on a reality they knew to be certain, which was that their Lord was dead. And so they head to the tomb, ready to do what you do to a dead body. And instead, they meet two angels, two dazzling guys who speak a profound and shocking word. They say, Jesus is not dead, but he's alive. So why are you looking for the living among the dead? And so news spreads, and they go to the other disciples, and they share what has just happened to them. The disciples of Jesus don't. Buy it. They don't believe it. Peter runs to the tomb, finds it empty, and simply leaves wondering what happened. Uh, Luke tells us that the disciples said that this news seemed to them as nonsense. This is important because, in other words, there were absolutely no categories for what they were experiencing. They did not make up the resurrection, they could not have even conceived of it. And so they are profoundly struck by this. And now the story picks up in Luke 24, verse 13. Follow along with me. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast, and one of them, named Clopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things? Jesus asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. And the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. What is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. So he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. This is such a cool story it's got it all. It's got suspense. It's got sorrow. It's got excitement and mystery. And for many centuries, this text, this story has been the focal point of a great deal of reflection and meditation because in it, we find a model for what being a Christian from that day to our present day is really all about. And we're going to finish the story in the weeks to come. It provides a roadmap for us. But today what I want to do is I just want to focus on the first few verses just to get us started talking about three realities that paint a picture for us of this road, this journey that means community and transformation for each of us. So the three things I want to share this morning are the disorientation of the road, the, the discipline of walking together and, the, and discovering Christ with, with us along the way. So let's let's look first at this, this idea of the disorientation of the road. Disorientation is probably too mild of a word for what Clopas and his unnamed friend are experiencing. Luke tells us they hoped Jesus would be the Messiah, the one to redeem Israel. And for a first century Jew, what this means is you hoped... That this was going to be the guy who would have a military victory and triumph over the dirty, rotten, pagan, imperial powers of Rome. And the nation of Israel would be vindicated, free of foreign oppression and occupation, and the Messiah would restore the temple to its glory. Yahweh would rule from the throne of Zion. And we expected it to be mighty and cataclysmic. And what they got was something humble and just under the radar. And so what happened for them, their hope was dashed. Their hope was completely dissipated like smoke, just vanishing. And so what happened was, instead of their military leader, Messiah, what they had was a crucified Messiah. And in the eyes of any Second Temple Jew, a crucified Messiah is a failed Messiah. It is not the Messiah, according to first century Jewish eyes. What this means for us is, friends, these two guys are... Maybe one's a woman, we don't know for sure. But their hopes were dashed. Their hopes were utterly torn to pieces. Everything they had staked their lives on had been violently ripped out from underneath them. The old certainties they had ordered their lives around no longer made sense, and now they had to embrace a new way of seeing reality. It was not easy for them. They're walking in utter disappointment. And we too, in our own way walk our own Emmaus roads, don't we? We walk in the tension between the now of God's kingdom and the not yet of his kingdom. We walk in disappointment, in the tension between disappointment and future hope. We walk in the tension between pain and healing so often. And so we walk between the disorientation of life as it is, and the hope of God's presence putting life back together for us. I tend to think that we look at disorientation under a negative lens, that we think of being disoriented as a totally negative thing, as something to avoid. But what's interesting in this story is their loss propels them forward and opens them up to encountering Jesus. It's their disorientation that creates a a fertile soil for what Jesus wants to speak into their lives. So could it be that our disorientation is a positive thing that God uses in each of our stories to move us forward with him? And it's a part of the way he works transformation in us. So let me go back to where we started. Christian community, I said, is very often overpromised and under-experienced. And let me tell you why I think the realities of transformation on one hand and community on the other are often under-experienced for us. I think it's because frequently we engage the church and we engage God with a wrong set of expectations. That we head in expecting one thing and we don't experience what we hope for because we're looking for it in the wrong places. So, for example, if I expect community to be spectacular, I won't go looking for it in the regular. If I expect transformation to be something without suffering, all I'm ever going to look for is entertainment and I'll never be changed. If I'm looking for something easy, I'll miss it because I'm not looking for it in the difficult. And we often fail to find community that reflects Jesus because we're usually looking for community that just reflects ourselves. I remember the first time Lorna and I had a good, real fight. Um, we were actually out in the church parking lot. Um, so it's probably your fault. I'm I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, That's emotionally healthy. Uh, So uh, I don't remember the fight, but I remember the feeling and I remember the scene. And what was interesting to me, and it was while we were dating, it was one of those moments where the gloves came off. And with the gloves came the masks. Right? The masks were off. It was a great moment because from that moment forward we could date each other for who we really were, not who we wished we were, who we wished we were portraying. It was a moment to begin a relationship, not a moment to end the relationship. And so... One of the great modern classics about Christian community is Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Life Together. This is a great short book. You should grab it, put it on your Amazon wish list right now. I will not feel like you're interrupting my preaching. Just do it. And so we, uh, uh, one, of the, one of the great realities of this book is it was written by a guy who truly lived his faith in a tested time. He lived in Germany during the Third Reich. He was arrested and killed by the Nazis for living out his convictions. Some of them were, you know, like trying to kill Hitler. But um, anyway, you'll get killed for that in the Third Reich. Uh, One of the things, though, that's haunted me for years by by what Bonhoeffer writes, both haunted and inspired me, is that his claim here is that the fastest way to destroy community is to be occupied by your own wish dream for it. If you want to kill, poison, or injure community... By all means, maintain your wish dreams for it. Listen to what he says. Bonhoeffer says this. He says, innumerable times, the whole Christian community has broken down because it had sprung from a wish dream. So the serious Christian set down for the first time in a Christian community is likely to bring with him or her a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be and try to realize it but by God's grace or but God's grace speedily shatters such dreams just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship so surely must we be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with others with Christians in general and if we are fortunate with ourselves how do you like that By sheer grace, he says, God will not permit us to live even for a moment in a dream world. He goes on, he says this. He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes the destroyer of the latter, even though his or her personal intentions be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. Bonhoeffer's on to something. He's saying, get the gloves off. And get the masks off. Because Christian community cannot be what we wish it is. It can only be what it actually is. It's about real people drawn together around the real substance of a real Lord who is the only true real glue and bond. And so the quicker our wish dream dies, the better for the community. And maybe you've been on the receiving end of a wish dream. Maybe you haven't measured up to someone's wish dream. And you have the scars to prove it. Or maybe you know the feeling of being let down by someone failing to live up to your wish dream. It's brutal, isn't it? Just like the disciples on the road. Just like them, they had to be disabused of their wrong expectations of the kingdom. Their expectations of the kingdom would be that it would come in power without a cross. They had to have their wish-dream dashed to pieces because God's reign and rule only comes through a cross. And this this is just so profound, friends. Because we too, just like those disciples, have to become disillusioned. We have to experience disorientation on the road. To be disoriented from our own thoughts and expectations so that we can find our bearings in what Jesus wants in reality. So, here's the question this morning. Where are you on the road? What are the pictures and images of community that came to mind when we first started talking about this? What are those thoughts? What are those ideas? What is the wish stream that you have, uh, that you live into? Do you have a wish stream today? And, And how might it be in the way of what Jesus wants to do in the actual community that he's called you to be a part of? Um, here's how you begin to discern a wish dream, by the way, I I thought of a great diagnostic question. I'm celebrating myself right now. I'll give you 20 points for asking it to yourself though, like 20 real points. Uh, I don't know what they'll get you, but if you ask this question, 20 points to you, here's the deal. Ask this question this week, today, if you want to know where you have a wish dream that is an obstacle to actual deep community, here's, here's where you can begin to assess it. Ask this question: Where do I let, where do I let disappointments prevent me from persevering in doing the will of God? Where do I let disappointments prevent me from persevering at doing Jesus' will? That's a, a, a twenty-point question, and I promise, beh- the answer. behind door number, the answer to that question, you will find incipient wish dreams that prevent you from living into what Jesus calls you to with the actual people around you. And so as we begin to let the wishes for our community dissolve, we can actually begin to love the community for what it is. So disorientation is the first gift of the road. We have to become disoriented so that we can become open to what Jesus actually wants to do. We have to let our our wrong expectations of the kingdom of community and transformation, we have to let those fall apart so that way we can be actually aligned with real expectations. You see, if you have expectations of community and it's going to be spectacular, you're going to be disappointed. And Jesus wants you to be, like have appropriate expectations right, for people. If I have expectations that transformation is going to be like so pervasive and instant. I'm going to give up. I'm going to give up. I'm not going to persevere on a, you know, a, a, on a long road of obedience in the same direction. And I'm going to give up too soon if my expectations are wrong. Or I'm going to hurt people if they don't measure up to my expectations. I've got to get my expectations right. And that happens through disorientation. The next thing, though, that we see on the road, the first bit is we have to become disoriented. The second bit is this. We have to learn the discipline of walking together. We have to learn the discipline of walking together together. Now, we don't know for sure who uh, Clopas's companion is. Some think it's his wife. Others think it's Luke uh, anonymously putting himself in the story. I tend to think that Luke left it w- totally anonymous for a reason. I like to think that, uh, that Clopas' unnamed friend might be any one of us. That we're to imagine ourselves on the Emmaus Road too. To think, what would it be like walking this road? I also tend to think that Luke wants us to think for a moment and say, it is profound that they're walking together because they very likely could have gone solo on this journey. Think about it like this. If you have just risked your entire life, your entire reputation around associating with Jesus, and now Jesus is dead and he's Publicly declared a failure, how are you feeling about yourself? A little bit of shame? Embarrassment? Failure? What do we do when we experience shame, embarrassment, and failure? We hide, we withdraw, we isolate, don't we? So I think it's profound in this moment that these two folks walked together because I I know how I feel if I preach a mediocre sermon, I like, I just want to leave the room. Right. Uh, How do you think you feel if everything you have built your life on for the last three and a half years is just complete, a complete mockery and, and a total shame and viewed as an utter and total failure. You don't want to be seen by anybody. And so I think it's remarkable that these two folks walked together. Uh, my youngest daughter does this, right? We, when, when we feel shame, when we feel embarrassment, we hide. So now, like, whenever Lauren and I kind of go in strong with, like, you know, the artillery fire of, like, what are you doing, right? What happens? She does this. It's really cute. It's like, I can't see you. I don't have to be corrected if you can't see me, right? We hide. It's human behavior to hide. Which is interesting. So we're, we're learning how to approach her a little more gently. Right? Lauren's really great at it. And so I'm, I'm learning. But the thing about hiding is this. It tends to be a tool that the evil one uses in your life. If he can get you to hide, he's got you. If we feel we are unsuccessful in our efforts to connect in community, we are less likely to keep at it. There's only one person who wants you isolated. Isolated. If we feel we are unsuccessful at being transformed in our inner person and character, we are less likely to show other people where we need help. We don't like to show that we need help. We like to show where we're winning, don't we? Everybody likes a winner. (laughs) That's what we think people want. And so when we show people ourselves we are afraid, and this is where the gospel meets us, fortunately. Uh, Oftentimes, I have found this to be true, that the oughts of the Christian life prevent us from dealing with the is of our current life. If you've been around Christ for a long time, and you've been in the church for a while, you, you know some things that ought to be true of your life in Christ. And oftentimes, they will prevent you from dealing with what is, right? I know I ought to be spending more time in God's Word and letting Him speak into my life, but I'm not. So, I don't need to show anybody that I'm not because I need to show people what I know I ought to be doing. I know I really shouldn't be in this relationship, and I, but I can't really deal with that right now because I don't want to let anybody know that I am not living into the things I know I ought to be living into. And so the enemy uses this all the time to get us isolated. And these two guys, or uh, pals, are walking together. They're choosing to be seen in their disappointment and their disorientation, and they're finding each other in it. I think that's remarkable. I think it's profound. And so this story highlights the importance of walking together, especially in disorientation, especially in our disappointments, and especially in our disillusionments. See, Clopas and his companion choose a discipline of walking together. Their experience of the road is not an experience of isolation, but of companionship. It's together that they encounter the risen Jesus. And it's together that we need to learn to walk the road of the now and the not yet of God's kingdom. This is why the author of Hebrews in chapter says 10 says this, Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day of Christ's return approaching. Why does he say this? Because he knows that you and I have this proclivity to isolate and to not walk alone alongside someone else. He knows that the easiest part of the Christian faith to ditch often is the together dimension. And yet, while it's the easiest to chuck away, it's the hardest to live without. And so... One of the things Bonhoeffer says in his book here is he says that the person who cannot be alone must be aware of community, right? Because some silence and solitude is needed in our time with God. But then he says this, the person who cannot be in community must be aware of being alone because we need others we need to be challenged and we need to be encouraged. And this is why we believe in community groups and in mentoring relationships. That's what we've been talking about for the last month, that these are places and avenues where we experience God's grace and walking together. Well, I, My wife pointed something out to me this week, and that is this, about, it's about walking together. The image of walking together is interesting because uh, no one likes a, to go for a hike where you get left behind, Right? I mean, that's a lame hike. You're out for a walk and your buddy pieces out on you because they're faster than you. You're bummed. A good companion paces with you. They walk with you. We, we, we slow our roll or we speed up to be with that other person. But here's what's true of walking together. You're both facing the same direction. I think this is amazing. As you walk together, you're, you're walking in the same direction. Uh, And when you think about your spiritual journey, your own Emmaus Road, what you need is a companion who will share the same goal, who will face the same direction and say, we are facing towards Jesus and his kingdom, and that's where we're going. So here's how it gets practical. Who are the people who really know you? Who are the people you really know? Who share the same kingdom of God goals as you? Who you can say, we're going shoulder to shoulder, faced in the same direction, and they can encourage me to keep at it. Who do you intentionally walk alongside? Not just at the surface, but where you talk about the stuff of life. Look at, look at the text. Um, verse 13, now on the same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about everything that had just happened. They're talking about the stuff of life. They're not hanging out on the surface. They're going to the places of where they really are. They're dealing with trauma and dealing with hope and and doing it together. So what would it look like for you this week to be intentional about saying, I'm going to walk with someone. I'm going to get honest with someone and say, here's where I am. Will you face the same direction as me? Will you face towards Jesus and his kingdom? Will you encourage me to face that way as well? It means being honest about our expectations and saying, this is what I need in my life. Will you do that with me? And you have to be clear or or you'll drift. You have to be intentional or you won't do it. So that's the disorientation of the road. And that's the discipline of walking together on the road. But that's not all there is. If you want deep transforming community, it can't just be about friends on a road together. The third reality we discover in this text is we have to discover christ present with us along the way we have to discover christ with us what if this story was just about two friends walking it'd be really boring wouldn't it you're like okay i don't think i don't see why that makes the cut of the bible right like edit that one out even frodo and sam had to destroy a big evil ring right like there was something bigger to do than just walking with a friend and this is the thing we see in the text it's about a friendship centered on the presence of jesus It's about facing the same direction that we are aware of Christ walking this journey with us. It's actually the presence of Jesus that makes walking the journey mean anything. Look look at the text again. Uh, As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. There are places in your relationships where you're not recognizing Jesus with you. That Jesus is on the road with you. But do you see them? Are you aware of them? Are you paying attention to them? Bonhoeffer, this is the last Bonhoeffer quote of the morning. Just go by the book. But I'll give this to you. He says this, the, m- the more genuine and the deeper our community becomes, the more will everything else between us recede. And the more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and his work become the one and only thing that is vital between us solid isn't it he's saying look when when you realize that all the surface stuff is just not important the only important thing is what Christ present to us and with us is doing the deeper your fellowship will be so being aware of Christ's presence along the way means that we recognize where he is that he's there and that he's speaking and that he's what's vital in each moment and every moment, this is a discipline to learn how to do this. I had a great opportunity even this last week. I had a friend sharing this, this place where he felt, felt like, I just feel like a failure. And I listened and listened and listened. And we got to a point where I, I felt like this is the question to ask. And as he's seen himself in light of his, what he seems like failure, he was able to say, so how does Jesus feel about you? And it was like in that moment, there was like this melting of his heart. He was like, I know, I know, I, I need to see that. I need to hear that. And that's what we do with each other as we walk along the road. We point toward Jesus. Christian transforming community has always been about paying attention to the presence of Jesus on the road. He's the substance. I mean, pay attention to what's happening in this story for crying out loud. It's a story of two folks leaving a city in despair. And it ends as two folks heading back into a city full of joy. What makes the difference? Is Jesus and Jesus alone. Opening up the scriptures to them and breaking bread for them. That's the story. And so in this story, Jesus says they're foolish. They're slow of heart to believe all that the scriptures teach I love that. He's saying, this is all about me, by the way. Your lens for reading the Bible is that it all points to me. And so he opens up their minds to show them the gospel, that the Messiah had to suffer and die and then enter his glory. The gospel is always about the cross and the resurrection. That's the good news of what God has done. And so Jesus gospels them on the road, and their eyes are opened at the table where he breaks bread with them. We'll see more about that in the weeks to come. So, the journey of being transformed in community is about anchoring our relationship in the presence of Jesus. So, how do we do that? Four quick things on how to do that, and we'll take communion. Here is what I want to show you and what I am learning myself along the way. How do we discover Christ present with us? The first thing is we have to learn. We have to learn. To allow the scriptures to guide us we look to the scriptures to guide us i love what jesus does here jesus himself comes alongside he's present with them but what does he use to open their eyes to him the scriptures he doesn't just kind of like drop in and say like hey what's up i'm jesus glory right no he opens up the scriptures pay attention to how jesus shows up he shows up and he says look at me here here in the book and so if we want to see Jesus with us, we have to learn how to be guided by the scriptures. Good spiritual companions will allow the voice of the scriptures to become the prominent voice in the conversation. Not browbeating, but constantly moving back to how does the story reveal what your life means, what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he wants to do in your life. So that's the first thing, we look to the scriptures to guide. The second thing we do is we listen for what the Spirit speaks. Jesus told his disciples in John 14 that the Spirit of God would come and take the things that Jesus had said and cause them to remember them. And so you can tell if the Spirit's talking in your life because he'll take what's in the scriptures and he'll make it personal He'll apply it, he'll illuminate it, and he'll make it real on your heart in a way that blows you away. It's personal and it's shaped towards you. One of the things I've often started asking now as I hang out with people and when we pray together, I'll often ask at the end of prayer, what did you feel like you heard the Spirit of God saying while we prayed? Now, you have to test that. Some people cook up some weird stuff, right? I think it was this. "Ah, Does that sound like God... Mm, Right. Look at the scriptures, but ask the question, what's God speaking? And it's amazing. People say, I got this image, and it felt so encouraging. Or I felt like he he spoke this word to me that is in the scriptures. It's awesome. Just ask the question. What do you feel like the Spirit of God is saying to you? So we look to the Spirit to, to make the word personal. Third thing is we have to learn to ask so we can listen. Half the time when I enter a conversation, if I'm ready to just talk... I miss jesus if i'm there to fix if i'm there to just tell people what to think or do without listening we often miss jesus we just change behavior what's jesus up to and then finally the third thing is we need to learn to point to jesus sufficiency when we're lost many times on the road you will be walking with someone and you will find yourself in a situation where you are powerless to fix incapable of explaining And one of the greatest disciplines is to learn to be quiet in that and point towards the sufficiency of Jesus, even when things don't make sense or they don't seem fixable. And that's what happens on the Emmaus road. These disciples are walking in despair and it's Jesus and Jesus alone who is able to fix their despair and call them to hope because he's alive and present. And that's where they can say, we're our hearts burning within us the whole time he walked along the road with us. And they finally get it and they realize Jesus is alive and with us. And there will be times when the only thing you will be able to do is point to the sufficiency of Jesus. And that is a beautiful thing. So let's Face the disorientation of the road. Let's learn the discipline of walking together and make sure we are always discovering the presence of Jesus with us. And it's with that that we turn to communion. This tangible reminder that Christ is present to his church through the the, the symbolic uh, representation of his body and blood through the cup and the bread. You see, Jesus shows us that he and he alone is the only hope we have. See, he becomes utterly shattered and totally disoriented at the cross so that we can find our bearings in him. He experiences utter loneliness so that we can have ultimate fellowship. And it's in the cross of Christ that he loses the sense of God's presence so that we can never lose God's presence. So we go to the table to celebrate that reality that at the table we find the substance and the hope of our lives. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for all that you speak to us through your scriptures. We thank you for the bread that symbolizes your body given for us, that makes us one body in you. And we thank you for the cup that symbolizes your blood, that atones for sin and cleanses us forever, making us your sons and daughters, utterly spotless and blameless before you. So as we grab hold of those things and take them in, we declare again that our trust is in you and in the, in, in the name and lordship and work of Jesus. And we are your people in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.